Uh, brothers and sisters, let's turn together in our Bibles, uh, because we have profession of faith, and I thought it'd take a little bit of time, let's turn just to our sermon text, which is going to be again from the, the book of Acts, chapter number two. The book of Acts, chapter number two. And we're going to pick up where we left off uh, at verse 22. If you haven't had a chance to, uh, or if, you, if you've had to miss a Sunday, or if you haven't had a chance to, to listen to all the, all the sermons so far, it's only been... Uh, four so far, so you, uh, you can catch, uh, catch up quick if you'd like to uh, on our YouTube channel. You can, you can watch, listen to the sermons. So uh, here, fifth time in Acts, uh, and Acts 2, once again. Peter is, uh, ha- uh, is preaching here on the day of Pentecost. It's the 50th day after the Passover celebration of uh, the Old Testament. It's the day on which they would celebrate the harvest. Um, and so it was a very uh, prophetic way of, of describing that uh, one day to come, there was going to be a harvest, not of wheat, grain, and so forth, but a harvest of souls, a harvest of sinners uh, who were going to come into uh, the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom. And so Peter's preaching, and uh, they are speaking these miraculous languages, translated here as tongues, they are speaking the languages of various peoples. You see the list there uh, in verse 7 and so forth, uh, down to like 12 or so. Uh, and they're all hearing in their own language, their own dialects. Dialectos is the Greek term there for a, for a dialect or a language. Uh, the, the marvelous, wonderful works of God. And they're perplexed, they're amazed, but yet some are mocking them. They're filled with wine, they're filled with new wine, they're drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning, they're drunk already. Uh, and so Peter's addressed that. We saw last Sunday that, uh, verse uh, 14 down through verse 21. Let's pick up at verse 22, uh, where Peter now shifts the focus of the sermon from answering those immediate objections in a very urgent way to this, verse 22. Men of Israel, again, remember, all, the, all male Jews were required to, uh, to, to travel to Jerusalem three times a year for the Passover, for the Pentecost, and, or the Feast of Weeks, it's called, uh, and uh, thirdly, the, uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so uh, they are all there, these men of Israel who have been scattered across the ancient world. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord, this is now Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or Sheol in the Old Testament, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You uh, you make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his ascendants on his throne, he foresaw 
and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. That he was not abandoned to Hades, to the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then he concludes saying this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Messiah, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And all of God's people say, Amen. Well, what a great uh, uh, sermon here that we want to turn to again this morning uh, on uh, this, this Sunday, but uh, this Advent season. Uh, and again, just to mention what I mentioned last Sunday, uh, since this is going to be part two uh, of, this, uh, uh, of this sermon here of Peter. Uh, that Pentecostal, that, that word Pentecostal, we have Pentecost and Pentecostal. Pentecost is a noun, it's a, it's a day, uh, so it's a thing. Uh, and and uh, Pentecostal is an adjective that describes the things of Pentecost, the things that pertain, the things that go on, the things that are about Pentecost, that day, that 50th day after the Passover. So Pentecostal, uh, as I mentioned last Sunday, it's an adjective, it's a descriptive that uh, I, for one, am not willing to surrender. In fact, I've gone back and I've been searching old hymnals, and well before so-called, uh, the so-called Pentecostal movement, Pentecostalism, the Pentecostal church, it even existed, 1906. We, as Christians, have been using this language for generations. In fact, I've traced it all the way back, as far as I can find, Uh, in English literature, to like the 1660s. This language of Pentecostal. We've used this word, and so we shouldn't be afraid to say that we are Pentecostal Christians. And we want to follow the apostles and preaching in a Pentecostal kind of way, in a Pentecost kind of way. So Pentecostal is an adjective describing the things of Pentecost. What were those things? What were the things that, were do, that they were doing that were happening on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Okay, they spoke in tongues. I mean, everyone knows that one. I mean, that's the easy one, right? What else were they doing? They're praying, yes, they're praying. What else are they doing? What's Peter doing in our, in our text? He's preaching. And what, what's about to happen in the, in the, in the latter part of the text? Those who, some of those who heard, what are they going to uh, have done to them? They're going to be baptized. We're going to read in chapter 2, verse 42, that they devoted themselves to the, the apostles' preaching and to the, the prayers, to the fellowship, the, the community, and to the breaking of the bread, that is, the Lord's Supper. And so to be a Pentecost Christian is to, to, to preach, to baptize, to commune, to pray, and to fellowship. And so we are Pentecostal Christians because we do the things of Pentecost. Do we do these things? Do we do these things, brothers and sisters? Are these things that only the apostles did? No. 
Are these things this morning that we read in our text and we read the text around it in chapter 2, are these things that, uh, uh, are, are these things, things that uh, only Pentecostal churches do? No. We preach, we baptize, we take the Lord's Supper, we pray, we have fellowship, and so we are Pentecostal Christians. We are churches and believers that do the things that God wants us to do uh, that, uh, that the church on Pentecost did. We shouldn't be afraid of that word. It shouldn't give us the heebie-jeebies, right? It shouldn't, it shouldn't make us sort of get that little feeling that, oh man, this is uncomfortable, No, we are Christians who believe in Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord. He's poured out upon us to the Holy Spirit. We are baptized as well in the Holy Spirit. And so we do these things of Pentecost. And so we're going to think here, especially in our passage about Pentecostal preaching again, uh, the second time. So what is Pentecostal preaching? What is Pentecostal preaching? What's the big thing that we saw last Sunday? What's the big thing that characterized the beginning of the sermon in Acts 2, verse 14 to 21. Pentecostal preaching is what? Anybody remember from last week? Sure, it is. But what's the, what's the word that I used last week that describes Peter's sermon? It was an urgent kind of a preaching, wasn't it? It was an urgent kind of a preaching because people had objections, so very urgently wanting to answer those objections. But urgent even more so, we saw, uh, because of what Peter does. He he takes to that quotation from Joel chapter 2, verse 17. In the last days. In, in Joel, it was just afterward. After these things happened, the prophet said, this next thing's going to happen. But Peter says, under the power of the Holy Spirit, in the last days, these things are going to happen. We're living in those days. It's the, these are the last days. In fact, I mentioned again, 1 John, uh, I believe it's in chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, the apostle who leaned upon Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, said, my little children, it is the last what? The last hour. The last hour. And I I answered, well, how can that be? It's been 2,000 years. That's a really long hour, isn't it? It's because we view time from our point of view. God views it from his. And we have to view time, our time, from God's point of view. It's the last hour. And so preaching must be urgent. And that's why Peter ends up in verse 21, leading to our passage this morning, where he says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who's the Lord? Who's this Lord that people can call upon and cry out to and know that they are saved? That's what he goes on to explain in verse 22. And following. So I want us to see, secondly then, what is Pentecostal preaching? It's urgent, for, as we saw last Sunday. It's also, secondly, Christ-centered. Or better yet, it's Christ-filled. Christ-filled. C.H. Spurgeon, that great uh, preacher in London in the 19th century, said, Whenever I get hold of a text, I say to myself, There is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. Every text, some way, somehow, is a road map to Jesus Christ, and we need to stay on that road until we find him. That's what Peter does. Preaching, Pentecostal preaching is urgent. It's Christ-centered. It's Christ-filled. And that's the heart of the matter here, verse 22 to 36. Uh, notice 
that preaching here is described in terms of being filled up with or centered upon the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. And it's not just a description of Jesus, say, in sort of a one-dimensional piece of paper or a two-dimensional drawing, height and length, for example. Preaching is three-dimensional, in a sense. It's not a picture, but it's like a diamond. Not a picture of a diamond, but it is a diamond. You can't, it's not just a picture of what you can see in a two-dimensional way. It's the actual real thing that you can hold in your hand and, and see all the angles and all the aspects and all the facets and all its fullness. That's what Peter's doing here when he says that preaching is Christ-filled or Christ-centered. Well, who's the Lord then? Who's this Lord that... The prophet promised, and Peter promises, that it shall come to pass, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a bunch of points there. You'll see that they're in the outline. There's five little points, and they're going to be quick, uh, I promise. But I want to see here what he says about Jesus. Who is this Lord? Who is Christ? Who is this Savior from sin? Notice, first of all, his humanity. Pentecostal preaching is Christ-centered because it preaches the humanity of of Jesus Christ, verse 22, meant Jesus of Nazareth, a man. You see, as we, we sang this morning about the advent of our God, and we recited those words from that ancient creed, uh, and we'll do so during the Advent season, that, that spoke of the reality of the Son of God becoming a man. Some of those phrases might be unfamiliar to us. They might, they might be kind of strange to us. There's a big theological reason for all these words, but just very simply to say that the Son of God became a true human being. Ancient Greek mythology uh, said that the gods, like Zeus, for example, Zeus could take all kinds of various forms. There's times in mythology where Zeus turns into an eagle and uh, or an animal, because he wants to see what's going on down here on earth, from Mount Olympus down here on, on, this, on this earth. And there's times where Zeus takes the form of a man so that he can, he can have relationships with women, for example. Give birth to Perseus and others. Jesus is not like Zeus of mythology. Zeus took human form, but he wasn't a human being. Jesus, the Son of God, who becomes human in Jesus, or as Jesus, actually, really, genuinely takes to himself a human nature. And so in that that part of that creed that we recited this morning, it said that uh, he's from the essence of the Father begotten before time. In other words, he's divine. But he's also of the essence of his mother born in time. That means he's a real human being. Completely God, completely man. And there's that sort of a strange phrase to us, at least, with a rational soul and human flesh. That's an ancient way of saying that he was as human as you can possibly be. In everything that it means to be a human being, to have a body, to have a mind, to have a soul, all that except for sin, that's what Jesus is. The Son of God became that. And he didn't become that, that creed said, uh, by his divine nature turning into human flesh. That would be sort of the Zeus thing. 
or also not by his divine nature sort of being blended up in a blending machine uh, with human nature and becoming kind of a third thing. No, the, the Son of God took to himself, he added to himself a human nature, just a way of saying that he still remains divine while he also becomes man. He's always been God, but he became in real time, space, and history a human being in every single way that we are. Sometimes we, we tell our kids things like, um, you know, I, I once climbed a fence, you know, and I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I fell down and, you know, cut myself, broke a limb or whatever it might be. You know, our kids get in trouble and they maybe have done something and we try to, try to explain that, yeah, you know, I, I was a kid too once, you know, and, you know, I, I can teach you some things, you know, there's some lessons of life that I can tell you. You know, I climbed a fence like that, I climbed a wall, I, you know, I did something crazy that I should not have done. Uh, sometimes we, you know, we might, we'll tell our kids, you know, well, I made the same kind of mistake too. I once rode a bike and I once did this. And I want, you know, we do that to, to show our kids, to communicate to our kids, to, to show them that, that, that we're just like them. That we're just like them. The Son of God became man. Added to himself, as the technical term, a human nature. He became man. So that he would enter into our humanity and he would, as Hebrews tells us, he would know what it was like to suffer and know what it was like to be weak and and to be tempted just like we are. So that we can go to him as a sympathetic and merciful high priest, knowing that he's like us. Although he's different, he's like us in our humanity. And so Christ-centered preaching, Pentecostal Christ-centered or Christ-filled preaching preaches and acknowledges the the true humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know he's got to be God. That's sort of the intuitive Christian thing. He's got to be God because only God can save sinners from sins. But he has to be a man because we as human beings have sinned. And we need a human mediator who's like us and tempted like us, but yet he never gave in to temptations. He overcame them all so that we can have a divine human Savior, and we as humans be brought to the divine, be brought to God. Secondly, notice Peter also goes on to describe briefly his works. So you have here the, the Christ-centeredness of his humanity, but also his works. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. And he uses here three different terms to describe in a fulsome way all that Jesus did, all the signs and the miracles and the wonders, uh, turning water into wine, uh, uh, feeding 5,000 men. I've mentioned this before many times. We should be impressed by John chapter number uh, 6 where Jesus feeds the 5,000. The text says 5,000 men. It doesn't even include the women and children. And he fed them with just a couple of loaves and a couple of fish, five loaves and two fish, he feeds 5,000 by doing a miraculous sign. He raises up his friend Lazarus. He tells a servant that uh, by, because of his, that servant's faith, his daughter is already healed without even seeing the daughter or touching her. We know the signs of Jesus, all the miracles, all the wonders, all the things that he did. He walks upon water. He stills storms with his very words. Peace, be still. And the storm stops. Most of all, he raised his own body from the grave. 
A man attested to you by God with mighty works. That, that term there is used to describe uh, a way of demonstrating the power of God. The power of God. And wonders. He did things to astonish, to arouse astonishment. And signs. That's a term that is used to describe the, uh, a thing that Jesus did to embody a spiritual significance. A sign. He turns water into wine. That's described as a sign in John's Gospel, chapter 2. Why? Because just like he turns water into wine, uh, and just like that new wine, that fresh wine, that best wine that came out last, contrary to the cultural expectation, it was a way of Jesus saying that he fully satisfies. He's the fulfillment of all those promises of God in the Old Testament that describe wine dripping off the mountains. So much is his grace that satisfies us as sinners. And so his works, he was attested by God, he, he says, Peter does, to the, to the crowd there. God did these signs through him, through Jesus. And all these things, these, these, these works, these wonders, these signs, were all meant to point to Jesus being God's sent Savior. That's the point of them all. Remember what Jesus or what uh, what John the Baptist's disciples. John was in prison, uh, and his disciples went and they found Jesus one time, and they come up to Jesus and they say, "You know, John has sent us your your cousin to ask this very simple, profound question: Are you the one that's to come, or we should look, or should we look for another one? Are you the promised Savior or not?" Do you remember how Jesus answered that question? Are you the one to come? That's the way of saying, are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? How did Jesus answer that question? He told them what? He, I mean, he didn't say, he didn't give a yes or no, did he? He did, but in a Jesus kind of way. Go back and tell John what? The dead are raised. The deaf can hear. The mute can speak. The blind can see, right? All the miracles, all the signs, all the wonders, all the powers that God did through him, they were all meant to testify that, yes, he was the one that was to come. There's no one else to look for. Tell John the signs of the Old Testament that describe the coming of God in human flesh, the Messiah. He has come. You see all these things. And so these are all meant to point to Jesus. And then we come to his death, verse 23. Peter preaches the humanity, he preaches the works, he preaches the death of Jesus. And he describes it in a very, very profound way here. We'll spend just a couple of minutes on it. This Jesus of Nazareth, who did many wonders and signs and miracles and powers of God, this Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed with the hands of lawless men. It's a big mouthful there. It's a lot there. Just notice a couple things. I'll make a couple comments about them. Notice the, the, the language of delivering up. Right? Who's doing the delivering? Who's doing the giving of Jesus to be crucified? That's the first thing that Peter sort of embeds there in that little phrase. And the second thing he says there is, notice that, 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 that phraseology of definite plan 
and foreknowledge of God. There's something significant about this delivering up of Jesus. And then there's something there that, uh, uh, that Peter says about the responsibility of the death of Jesus. So notice, he doesn't just say that he died. He doesn't just say that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He doesn't just say that, you know, he, as, as we sang, he had nails driven through his hands and through his feet. He, he describes the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, but in a very powerful way. And the way that he describes the death of Jesus here, it's, it's sort of like, you know, the proverbial uh, behind the curtain, you know, of a play. Yesterday, I, uh, Sadie had her first basketball game. Dad's the coach this year. We're 1-0. Go Raptors. Go Raptors, right? And we, the gym that we are in, it's a little middle school, and uh, the, score, the score table is up on a stage, and there's a little hallway. So I told the, told the girls, hey, let's go to that little back hallway, and we're going to just you know, have a quick little pregame fire-up speech. And, uh, and then one of the girls walked up the steps, and... We're behind the scoreboard, right? We're, we're behind the curtain where, where if there was a, high, a middle school play, that's where the, where, the, where the curtain would have been. So you're kind of behind the scenes. You can see you know, what, what it looks like back there. It wasn't very impressive, but you know, you're behind the scenes. Peter, when he describes here this Jesus was, was given up to die, he's describing it sort of from behind the scenes, behind the curtain, behind all the action, so that you can get a glimpse of the eternal significance of all that Jesus did upon the cross. This Jesus delivered up. Isn't it interesting that here's Peter, who in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was betrayed by Judas, arrested by the Jewish temple police and some Roman centurions, and Peter pulls his sword out, doesn't he? And what does he do with the sword? He, he hacks off the high priest servant's ear, Malchus's ear. Peter was there. He knew who betrayed Jesus. He saw the exact temple police guards. He saw the exact Roman centurions face to face who betrayed Jesus and arrested Jesus unto death. But notice what he says. He doesn't say... This Jesus, delivered up by Judas Iscariot. He doesn't say that Jesus was, he was betrayed by his inner circle. He was an innocent man. He was a just guy. And he became a martyr because he was betrayed by his inner circle. He doesn't say that. Was Jesus a martyr? Yeah, in a sense. But there are many, uh, many people, you, and you're probably going to hear them during Christmas season if you, if you watch uh, you know, all the sort of History Channel kind of shows about Jesus and what, what really happened. You know, who was he? Did he really exist? And they're all going to say, well, you know, he was a great prophet. He was a great man. He was a great Jewish leader. You know, a very holy man. And Yeah, he was martyred for, for, this, for this crowd of people that followed after him. He's more than that. And that's not what Peter said. He's not delivered up by Judas. Who delivered up Jesus to the cross? God did. Notice that. Notice that. God delivered up Jesus. 
Now, Peter doesn't tell us all the ins and outs of all that means, and there's a great mystery behind that, but there's a, the way, a way in which we can understand that from all of eternity, God has purpose and plan, as you see there, definite plan and foreknowledge, that God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there's always been a plan in place for the redemption of the world. And so when that time came in human history, when the Son of God became a man, and the fullness of times had come in the last days, God, Father, Son, Spirit, who had planned from all of eternity, delivered up this Jesus. So he's delivered up not by Judas, but as an act of martyrdom, but by God himself. Notice as well that this was in accordance with what he calls a definite plan and foreknowledge. These are synonymous phrases. Definite plan, foreknowledge. They're synonymous phrases. They, they, they are describing the same thing using two different terms. It's like saying in the Bible... Uh, in the beginning, God created male and female uh, in his image, in his likeness. Image and likeness are the same, describing the same thing. And I mention that because sometimes we hear people say, well, God's foreknowledge means that God foreknows you know, all the stuff that's going to happen, but he doesn't have a hand to play in all that stuff. It's that proverbial, you know, we're going to have the... the uh, the Rose Parade coming up soon, and uh, if you watch the Rose Parade on TV, uh, they're always, you know, they're way up high. I mean, I'm old enough now that, you know, I'm sentimental about it, and it's, you know, it's Bob Eubanks and Stephanie Edwards, you know. They're not there anymore in the booth, but they're in the booth, right? They're way high up on the top. They can see all the way down Colorado Boulevard, up and down the whole thing. And people describe God's foreknowledge as, well, God is kind of like the person up in the booth, really high up. He can see the beginning of the parade and he can see the very end of the parade. He sees everything, but he doesn't really have a hand to play in any of it. He just kind of sees what's happening. That's not what foreknowledge is. In this context, at least. Does God foreknow everything that's going to happen? Absolutely. He's God. But notice that his foreknowledge is described as definite plan. And that's why foreknowledge is also, in the, depending on the context, and I think here's an example of it, where it describes uh, that language of knowledge, that close, intimate, personal understanding and relation that God has. It's a way of describing love. God from all of eternity has had a plan out of his love before anything existed to love the world, to deliver up his son for the world that does not deserve it at all. And so he's delivered up by, the, by God himself, not Judas. That's in a, he's delivered up according to God's eternal purpose, counsel, will, determination, foreknowledge, love, however, however, whatever word we use to describe it. To love the world, to bring salvation to us. All of that, though, notice what he also says. That the, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, those temple police, temple guards, you crucified and killed by means of the hands of lawless men, meaning the Romans. But I thought God delivered up Jesus. How can God deliver up Jesus, the righteous man, the sinless man, how can God deliver up Jesus to die upon the cross? And how can God 
determined that from all of eternity, all the action is on God's part here. But yet Peter can say, you, Jewish crowd, you collectively with your leadership, by the means of the Roman Empire, have killed and crucified the Son of God. How can he say that? Well, it's only ultimately reconciled, of course, in the the very mysterious wisdom and knowledge of God. But just notice how Peter states them both as equally true. God delivered up in his definite plan, his foreknowledge from all of eternity. He gave up his son to die for us. But yet those who actually did the deed are still responsible. It's the same thing with the sin of Adam. I mean, on the one hand, of course God knows everything. Of course God purposes and plans everything in some way, in some form, in some fashion. Yet Adam sins. And he's responsible for that sin. All this is to say that Jesus died with a purpose to save sinners like you. Jesus died with a purpose to save sinners like you. Our religion is not just that these things happened and the apostles formed a religion after these things happened to kind of help them cope with this beloved, beloved leader that they had, the master, the, the Lord, the teacher, the Messiah. And they, they concocted a religion. They, they created a religion to, to, to help them make sense of what happened. No, this was the definite purpose of God to save a sinner like you and me. That's why it's good news to us. And so, Pentecostal, Christ-filled or Christ-centered preaching is preaching that preaches the, the life of Christ, his humanity, his works, his death, his resurrection. Notice verse 24 to, to 32. And you can see there's just the amount of breath that he used, the amount of words that are recorded for us by Luke summarizing Peter's sermon, the resurrection takes on very serious importance here, very central importance amongst the centrality of Christ. This all happened. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. That's the same term used in the New Testament to describe birth pangs, right? It's uh, uh, the pangs of death, the sorrows, the struggles, the agonies of death itself. God raised up Jesus, loosing him from death. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it, by death. Why wasn't it possible for Jesus to die and just stay there and rot away for eternity? Well, he goes on to tell us why. On the, on the one hand, it's because God had promised. There's prophecy involved. The promises of God in, in Psalm 16 are that the Messiah, the anointed one, was going to be raised up. So it was not possible in that sense because God said it and it has to be settled. It has to be done. And on the other hand, the Bible tells us, and we'll see this later on in Acts even, in addition to that, I should say, in addition to that, God's own justice requires the resurrection because Jesus was the just man, the righteous Savior, the sinless Savior. He cannot remain in death or else God is unjust. And in addition to that, it was not possible because this man, Jesus, was also the Son of God. 
the human nature united to the divine in one person, God cannot be buried forever. He must raise, uh, be, 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 be raised up. He must rise again. It was not possible, Peter says. And he goes on to quote there for us Psalm 16. He goes on to tell us there that, that David, the patriarch, the great king, the great icon of Israel, the great uh, Messiah, the, one of the great messiahs of the Old Testament, the one from whom all the kings would come, that he is in a tomb to this very day. He both died and was buried, verse 29. His tomb is with us to this day. And we can say 2,000 years later, to this day still. But being a prophet, knowing God's, God, had, God had sworn an oath that he would set one of his, David's descendants, upon his throne, he foresaw, and David spoke, of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, we are all witnesses. How important is the resurrection of Jesus? Kids, we say in church, everything's important, don't we? <laughs> Everything that we, that, we, that we see in the Bible is important, but the resurrection is really important. Really important. It's like your parents, you know, they, 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 you, have, you have rules in your house, right? You can maybe only watch TV or play an iPad or go outside or, you know, whatever it might be, wear a certain kind of clothes. You know, there's certain rules about certain stuff in the house, but sometimes your parents say, now this is really important, really listen. This rule, of, sort of amongst all the rules, this is the one I really want you to, to get down deep in your head. So how important is the resurrection? We can say, on the one hand, uh, just by the amount of ink that was spilled, that the resurrection takes up more space, at least on Luke's, in Luke's uh, scroll, that's translated for us and brought down, passed down to us in, in manuscripts, just by that fact alone shows the resurrection is important, isn't it? But how important is the resurrection? I mean, if there's no resurrection, does it matter? Does it matter? Didn't Paul say something about this in 1 Corinthians 15? I don't know, chapter somewhere in 1 Corinthians 15. That if Jesus Christ isn't raised, your faith is what? Faith in vain. Your faith in vain. If he's not raised up, our preaching is in vain. If he's not raised up, we're still in what? Our sins. We're still in our sins. If Jesus Christ was not raised up, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because we say that God raised up Jesus whom he did not raise. If he, in fact, Paul says, was not raised. We make God to be out a liar. In fact, Paul tells us that if Jesus Christ was not raised, and we're doing this as Christians, we're missing out on life. Because the, the Greek poets, the Roman philosophers said, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're going to die. Right? Life is meaningless. Life is materialistic. Because all there is is this that you can see. Why would you believe in a resurrection? Why would you believe in an afterlife? Eat, drink, be merry. Because tomorrow you're going to die. 
But, in fact, Christ has been raised. That's how important the resurrection is. And finally, his ascension. Pentecostal preaching is Christ-filled or Christ-centered. It also, Peter here also mentions the, the ascension uh, when he tells us, uh, verse 33 and following, that uh, he's been exalted to the right hand of God. We say that in the Apostles' Creed. He received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out. And that, and that, and that verb of being poured out, it's just being drenched. It's just being saturated. Absolutely, uh, you know, the biggest water balloon fight your kids have ever had in the backyard. Just absolute drenching. Poured out. Saturated. All that you're seeing and hearing, this is what's happened. Because it wasn't David who ascended into the heavens, but the Lord. But the Lord. He quotes there Psalm 110, verse number 1. That's the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. It's kind of an important, kind of a big deal. Okay, Psalm 110, especially verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's David saying that. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand. And he concludes that for us in verse 36, where we'll conclude. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, this human Savior, the one who did all these mighty works and wonders, the one who died, the one who was raised, the one who was, who was ascended. He's made him, this Savior, both Lord and Christ, the one that you crucified. Now, he was made, that, 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 that word there, made Lord and Christ. He already was Lord, of course. He was already God. We know that. He was already the promised Messiah. But he's saying this, made, it's a way of saying that after the resurrection, uh, that, that, that this takes on uh, uh, significance, new and a more expanded way for us to now see it in reality. That all the promises of God of the Old Testament are now made for us in Christ, evident that He is Lord, that He is Messiah, because of the resurrection, the ascension, the death, and all those promises and prophecies fulfilled. Know for certain today, my friend, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God in human flesh, he's the Lord. He's the promised Savior. Know that today. Know that for certain. God has sent Jesus with a definite plan to save sinners just like you. Know that today for certain. And so here's a Pentecostal sermon, a, a sermon that has to do with the things of Pentecost, and it's full of Jesus Christ, full of him. Again, Spurgeon, that great preacher of the 19th century, said, I believe that the most, uh, I believe that those sermons which are fullest of Christ are the most likely to be blessed to the conversion of the hearers. Let your sermons, he says this to us as pastors and seminary students, let your sermons, and I would say this, he says, he, this is to all of us as believers here, we should want these kind of sermons. Let your sermons be full of Christ from beginning to end, crammed full of the gospel. Crammed full of the gospel. Kids, we want our trees to be crammed full of presents this year, don't we? 
We crammed our plates on Thanksgiving. (laughs) You should want sermons to be crammed full of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One old hymn says it like this, and I'll conclude with this. We would see Jesus for the shadows lengthen across this little landscape of our life. We would see Jesus, our weak faith to strengthen for the last weariness, the final strife. We would see Jesus, the great rock foundation, whereon our feet were set with sovereign grace. Nor life nor death, with all their agitation, can thence remove us if we see his face. We would see Jesus, other lights are paling, which for long years we have rejoiced to see. The blessings of our pilgrimage are failing. We would not mourn them, for we go to thee. We would see Jesus. This is all we are needing. Strength, joy, and willingness come with the sight. We would see Jesus dying, risen, pleading. Then welcome day and farewell, mortal night. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we desire to hear, and by hearing, even to see by faith, Jesus, every time we open up our Bibles, especially we come here together to do it as a church family. We pray that you would give to us, Lord, perseverance in the faith of Jesus to want to preach him, for those of us who preach, to want to hear about him, to hear him, those of us who hear, So that together we would just have faith full of Christ to assure us, to bless us, to encourage us, to motivate us, to send us out into the world to be a witness, to be light and to be salt, to be an example. We would see Jesus and so cram our minds with Christ and our hearts with his gospel, our lips with his words, especially this season of the year when we celebrate the advent of our God. Lord, we desire to see Christ. Help us to this end, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Let's turn together in our hymnal to a familiar hymn, 265, In Christ Alone. Let's stand.